Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Pack filler. Pack filler. I'm Pat Bolger. I'm Mark Hudson. Pack filler. Welcome to another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast, home to every bad or dumb ass who's ever straddled a top tube. You can be a part of the show on Facebook, Twitter, or dumb old email at info at packfiller.com. Listen while working, training, or just sitting and sipping a cold one. And now your hosts, Pat Bulger and Mark Hodgson. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Pack Filler Podcast. I'm Pat Bulger in the Pack Filler Studios, flying solo on this one, which I tend to do on some of these interviews. I don't know why. I don't think I think Mark thinks he's better than everybody else. Let's just think about that, should we? No. Uh, you know, first of all, let me kind of take you back. Let me spin you a little yarn, tell you a little story. Way back in the early 80s, this city that, that Mark and I call home, Spokane, Washington, used to be a pretty big hub for amateur, competitive, national caliber cycling events. We held, well, hell, we held two Olympic trials. We held a little event called the Washington Trust Cycling Classic, which went on to different names and different things like that. But it was a hell of a race back in the day. And um, I was fortunate enough to be growing up in an environment like that. I was a junior cyclist. I was able to experience a lot of the stuff. My parents were very heavily involved in promoting and putting on these events. They were um, race directors. They were major volunteers. They were majorly involved in getting a lot of the sponsors involved. And one of the best things they did was we housed cyclists for these events. Um, back, you know, then, you know, they weren't these multi-million dollar budgets for clubs and teams. And, and so a lot of the guys who would go to these races, to the Olympic trials, to the Washington Trust Classic, would need a place to stay. And we became one of those houses, and it became a regular occurring thing. And so I got to spend a lot of my summer weeks around world-class athletes, world-class cyclists. And it was such a neat thing to be growing up. And can you imagine as a kid being able to have the guys you look up to, your heroes um, in your living room, eating at your dinner table, uh, burning pasta on your stove, which many of them did, and and things like that. And, and it was always such a great thing. And they came back year after year because my my folks were always so good at feeding them, and, and we loved to cook, and we loved to have great dinners, and, and what what better way to get through a bike racer's heart than through his stomach? And I'm fortunate enough today to have on the show one of those athletes who I really looked up to, um, a really nice guy, had some of the most in, interesting vernacular of any cyclist I'd ever met in the day. He, I, 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 I did not name my son after him, but one of his catchphrases was, whoa, Jackson, and... Um, I think I learned to say the the phrase of getting your ticket punched uh, thanks to this guy. And he went on to have a really 
pretty damn quality cycling career, and he has since gone on into the broadcast booth to be, uh, what can I say, one of the more uh, original voices of the sport of cycling. Um, Todd Kogolski is, uh, I was able to catch up to him, get him on the phone. He and I have been bouncing back emails for a while, and I was able to finally catch up to him and, and get him into an interview. The guy's a busy guy, if you can only imagine doing all the TV work he does throughout the year for Universal through NBC. You've, we've, you've heard him, you've seen him on the Giro d'Italia, you've heard, you heard him and seen him in the, uh, in the Tour de France coverage, and... Um, all I can say it was it was nice to catch up to with the guy. He was you know he was somebody I looked up to as a kid, and he's somebody I also look up to even now in the in the in the ranks. So um, without further ado, here he is. Go go, Todd Gogolski. Okay, hey, some of you might know him from his days racing with Ten Speed Drive, the U.S. national team, Lowenbrow Crest, and of course the great Coors Light Squad of the late '80s. He's won national championships all over the U.S. and international scene. And how about his over 100 career wins in the professional amateur pelotons? You know that guy yet? Hey, how about this? You watch bike racing on TV? Hmm? Well, then you definitely know him as the voice of Universal Sports or NBC cycling coverage of the classics, the Grand Tours, and a heck of a lot more. And as of last year, an integral part of the Tour de France coverage alongside our regular voices we've been seeing, Phil, Paul, and Bob. Big welcome to Todd Gogolski into the show. How are you, man? Hey, I'm great, Pat. How you doing? Good. I'm doing great. Hey, you know, first of all, I, I we've talked about you on the show before and things like that. And, you know, you and I, I've, I've known you from the past, way back in the old days. But um, for, The good old days. Exactly. But for those of, you know, for those of our listeners who kind of, you know, get us up to speed, you know, to know where you, what your history was, what you've come from and, and how you got into the sport and things like that. Well, it's a it's a lifelong journey that's been related to the bike for me, and I actually first fell into bicycle racing really by happenstance. I was riding my bike to and from work every day, and uh, just started doing longer and longer jaunts as I would head from the little village of Tasuke outside of Santa Fe uh, into town to uh, be a Mercedes mechanic, and then back home in the evenings. And before I knew it. The mechanic career was gone, and I was a full-time bike racer as of the uh, the second year I started riding that bike to and from work. Oh, so you took your time with it. Great. You know, <laughs> for those of us who've been busting our asses for years, you just, oh, I'll do it in two years and be well, able to go up there. it was a little bit of a different time. We're talking the early 80s, so there was not nearly as much depth in the professional and uh, certainly not in the professional peloton. There was v- virtually no professional racing associated with the U.S. at that time. And uh, pretty much everybody was amateur, and some of those amateurs actually made some money, and uh, many of them did not. And uh, that has really changed over the course of, I guess it's been the last 30 years. It's hard to imagine it's been that long. Yeah. Well, I mean, what would what would you say in terms of that? You know, it's obviously not something that you could have just all of a sudden, okay, I think I'm going to be a, a full-time bike racer. I mean, there obviously had to be some results. You had to have, somebody have had to had to have looked at you and said, okay, this guy's got something. We got to, you know, we got to get him involved, you know, with the 10 speed drive group or with, you know, national team stuff like that. Was there some type of moment or a, or a win or a result that, that ended up in getting this whole thing rolling? Yeah. We're going to set, set all your listeners ears ablaze. The, uh, (laughs) The big catchphrase here is not a phrase. It's the name of Kent Bostick. Oh, yeah. And uh, you know Bostick. Absolutely. And, uh, affectionately known as the Bostosaurus. And uh, Kent was in New Mexico, and he actually had a lot of experience racing on the national and, and international level with the U.S. national team. And I met him, and I started training with him, and... He kind of took me under his wing, and before I knew it, I was racing for the team that he was the rider slash manager of, uh, 10-Speed Drive. And I spent several years with him and and kind of progressed. It got a little bit stronger, got greater and greater results along the way. And and from there on, it it just kind of – it's incremental. You open a door here. You open a door there. And there was no one particular win, but I would definitely have to say that the the key moment was Kent Bostick and meeting him and riding with him and uh, and spending the years racing with him. From there, 
the uh, the next big career moment for me would have been moving over to ride for Len Pettyjohn. And uh, Len Pettyjohn at that time was running in 1987, was running the Lowenbrow team. And uh, that was a, a great team for me to move into. We had a fantastic year as a team. And and uh, I had a really actually my best year ever on the bike in 87. And then that sponsorship changed into Crest and then into Coors Light. And mm-hmm. so I spent a bunch of years with Len Pettyjohn's programs. Now, was there a specific day or a race or an event that you would have considered kind of like, oh, man, this is the this is my best result? This is the one I remember the most, the one I... I think back upon, or was there just kind of a blur of all kinds of good days? <laughs> you know, I, I knew that you would ask me that, and yet somehow <laughs> I still didn't prepare myself. <laughs> pressure. I didn't think back through the through the fog. Uh, I'll tell you that my my favorite races were the Nevada City Bicycle Classic in Northern California. It's a really tough circuit race that has multiple thousands of feet of climbing in this little mining town. I won that a couple of times, and I also, uh, quite frankly, got my ticket punch there a couple of times, and it was really demoralizing. <laughs> um, I liked Mount Evans Hill Climb quite a bit, which is in Colorado, goes from Idaho Springs, altitude of just under 8,000 feet, up this uh, pretty intense climb to 14,200 feet. It's paved the whole way, highest oh, paved God. road in the world, as far as I know. Um, I also liked Philly. A lot. Yeah. And Philly was not my type of race. It was the national championship for close to 25 years. That has since moved on to Greenville for the last handful of years. But Philly was a great race because of the atmosphere. And the atmosphere there was, well, quite frankly, it was off the hook. And yeah. I had a lot of fun there. I was king of the wall there my last year uh, racing. Uh, that would have been 91 with Subaru Montgomery. Um, so it was a great race in just in, in the flavor of it. The city embraced it. And uh, and there were some races in Europe and stuff that I liked as well. But domestically, I mean, there's so many good races, so many great memories. But those three, for some reason, really stick with me the most. Okay, okay. Hey, what uh, talking about your, in your opinion, kind of here, what are, the, what are the changes that you've seen through your career and even into today's cycling, the biggest changes you've experienced or, or just been a part of, you know, anything from technological to, uh, to writing styles to the, you know, to, even to, to what you're working in now, to press coverage, you know, getting the word out there. Well, um, I could start with equipment and, and I'll spend the least amount of time on equipment because equipment is changing so rapidly that uh, you know, you know you have to really be paying attention to know the latest with the equipment. But obviously, massive changes in the equipment. I can go out now and get on somebody's twenty five hundred dollar bike, and it'll be vastly better, more comfortable, faster, perform better yeah. than any bike I ever raced on. And that's a $2,500 bike. I mean, that's that's like an, the bottom of the line carbon fiber bike that you could probably get your hands on, you know, with, with oh, a, yeah. a relatively low spec group on it. And the wheels are incredibly better now. I, I actually have ridden on some nice wheels as of late and uh, I have a set of Reynolds wheels. And it's just incredible to me, like how much faster they are and... Uh, so it's 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 night and day the equipment side of things, but I, I think that to me what's more important is the human side of things, and though we like to think at the time with the teams I rode for, especially under Len Pettyjohn's guidance, he was a really good team director in terms of keeping us unified as a team all those years on Low and Brown and Crest and Coors Light. We really felt like we did a good job racing as a team, that we had it figured out, that we could really work together as a group to better the chances that we could win a race or that you know we could have a protected rider who, who could shine. And we did a good job, but people are just getting a little bit better at that as the years go on. The, the mindset it just continues to progress and everybody continues to realize that that is the key 
to being a professional cyclist is to work as a unit and to try and balance your personal ambitions with the fact that your team needs to win. Wow. Yeah. And that was always our mantra. It was like, look, we don't, you know, Len would tell us, he didn't care who won the race, but we better win it. And if we didn't win the race, he didn't have to, uh, you know, pull us aside and lecture us. We were already putting ourselves in the in the doghouse because we were so disappointed with ourselves. And and that's that's the atmosphere that you need in in a team. And and it's it's just continued to go. And the places where we've really seen that change the game are, I think, in Europe and and what most of the audience of the world of cycling would know is the Tour de France and how Lance Armstrong and Johan Brunil and the various iterations of their programs, um, they changed the game at the Tour de France. I mean, when Le Mans won the Tour, the three years that he won it, it was... It was a battle. Yeah. 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 It was messy. Yeah. You know, it was really messy, and half the team would ride for him, and half the team would ride with for Bernardino or, or whoever else happened to be on the team that they were riding for at whatever year it was. And, and you know, he was out there riding tempo on the front, trying to contain brakes himself. It was really messy. Yeah. And, and he did a phenomenal job of, of what he did to win those three tours, and it was, it was really touch and go on, on a lot of those. And Lance and Johan, they figured out that you needed to be smarter. And, you know, it's one thing to have a bunch of strong individuals, but if they're not riding smart, you're really going to miss your true potential. And those guys really changed the game there. And I actually, I mean, it's funny, you haven't even asked me any questions about Lance, but I'm, I'm going to throw out there that I don't think anybody's ever going to win seven tours to France again. I agree. Uh, um, it, you know, those guys had something, the way the team was put together, the way the leadership was, and the fact that they had a guy who could actually do it for seven consecutive years without ever crashing out of the race, without ever being so sick during the race that he couldn't handle it a guy who could handle the pressure, the media, everything. It's a huge deal. And, um, but you know, I digress. No, so those guys, they really did move the, they moved the ball forward and man, you see, you see it just changing the way bike racing is, is handled. And, um, and some people, they don't like that. Some people yeah. think that it's too predictable. Uh, but I can tell you, you know, now that I'm in, in the broadcast world for, I've worked for a bunch of different networks. I'm, I'm a freelance guy, and uh, I have no problems with it. I think that it still is very interesting, and it provides all kinds of opportunities for for me as a broadcaster to try and explain to people how it actually is a team sport. And if it's just a free-for-all, then there's no way to explain that. Yeah. Do you equate any of that, by the way, to this the new kind of style of specialization where we've got people focusing for very specific races. I mean, Lance in his career was, was very specific in where he focused his goals. We've got, uh, you know, a lot of writers who are just doing that very thing. Whereas back in the days of Merck's Merck's wrote everything. Um, yeah. is that, I mean, is that something that we can equate to the, the, the changes in the sport or you just think it's all racked up to the fact that, okay, on this team, this guy is our guy for this race. Uh, absolutely. I would say that it is directly related to the fact that riders are focusing more on some riders are focusing more on individual events, which means everybody has to do yeah. that because, Guys prepare so much better for the Giro d'Italia if they're yeah. going to win that, the Tour de France if they're going to win that, La Vuelta a España if they're trying to make that their season goal. And if you just go in there having sort of raced a whole bunch of races, let's face it, you're not going to be as well prepared. You just can't do it. And so as the sport has grown in stature in the U.S., internationally, there's more money there's more pressure, there's more fame, there's more of a lot of things. And within that, if you don't focus your attentions 
you're not going to be able to be very successful. Now, now I will tell you, there are exceptions to the rules, uh, but they're typically not stage race exceptions. They're typically one day hitters. Yeah. Field sprinters, uh, Philippe Gilbert last year. I don't know what to say about him. The guy flew all year. Yeah. He's unbelievable. You know, I mean, if the next time I run into him, I, you know, yeah, I would, I would think I'd be more appropriate to bow down than anything. I was thinking the same thing, drop to a knee or something like my liege or something stupid like that. He is, he is the, the, he's unbelievable. Um, but, but when you're talking stage racers, it's pretty tough for them to do a whole bunch of races. Yeah. And even the best guys like a Contador um, last year, I want to say, and, and you, I mean, don't quote me on this, but people feel <laughs> free to, you know, go look at the record books and see how wrong I am. Uh, I don't think he finished outside of the top 15 in any race he did. If you take a one day race, or a stage race overall. Now, in stages yeah. of stage races, obviously he was below that. But I believe he may have even been top, and maybe eleventh or twelfth was his worst worst one day result. Oh my God! I um, haven't even paid attention to that. You know, he's fifth at the Tour de France. He won the Giro. They sacrificed really his chances for the Tour yeah. by doing the Giro with an incredible number of summit yeah. finishes, and he, he didn't just ju- couldn't he, recover. He didn't just win the Giro. I mean, that was. <laughs> That was just it. It almost became to the point of being like, "Oh my God, give us a break!" You know, it, it became so such a crushing result. Yeah, there. yeah, he, he was unbelievably yeah. good. And I even talked with his directors from previous teams during the Giro, and I asked them about Alberto, and and they just said, "You know, he's better than he's ever been." It's like it, they were just shocked. <laughs> Yeah, and those were those were directors on teams that that were not Soxabank. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now you know. Speaking of you know, moving into this broadcasting career, and first of all, a lot of the stuff that that a lot of the things I'll see online talking about you is the fact that um, it's appreciated appreciated that you are an, an, an somebody who's on the microphone who isn't a full on talking head, and I don't mean that as an insult to the guys who aren't talking heads, but I mean you have an expertise of the sport which really helps with the understanding. You understand the tactical nature of the sport, which makes it more interesting for I think uh, people with experience, people without experience. What uh, what went from cyclist to broadcasting? How did this whole transition happen? It's a, it's a great question. And first, I'd just like to say, uh, I'm glad that that's what you hear. That's exactly what my goal is, is to bring information to a wide variety of viewers. And that's a challenge. Um, The big challenge is getting that balance and not just speaking to the people who have been there, who have raced, who have been to lots of races, who read about it a lot, but also to catch that casual observer who is flipping through the channels or randomly goes over to a friend's house to watch a bike race and happens to yeah. uh, see something for the first time and and not lose them. Who doesn't so, know what GC stands for. Right, right. <laughs> and and so if, if, you, if you listen to the way Steve Schlanger and I work together at Universal Sports, you will find that typically if he mentions kilometers, I will back that up with a statement in miles. If he mentions GC, I will very often come in with my next comment about the general classification. Um, And and so we we work in a way so as to hopefully weave the, the whole story in without making it seem too obvious that we're that we're defining these things that a lot of people know, but some people don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but to, to answer your question, um, I actually had a very great opportunity and I had been, uh, announcing on various start finish lines around the country, standing on the stage with the public address system. And I had been in Philly on the wall and, in California and, you know, coast to coast all over the place for a few years. And during that period, I I had a couple opportunities to do some small television gigs for bike races that I was announcing. And then maybe would, they would do a sort of an edited show that would get put on the TV afterwards. 
and I just got enough exposure there. And the 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 real breakthrough came when I was doing the television for John Eustace out in Pennsylvania at the Univest Grand Prix, and that was run live on local affiliates of NBC in the area of Philly. And um... there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I, I just, I was on there with Craig Hummer, and Hummer had come from the tour, and I was the analyst. And, and uh, it was my first real chance to call a race live and just have it go out and have it be what it was. And uh, that was a handful of years ago, and um, and it worked out quite well. And I know that I was not great, but at least I got a feel for it. And thankfully for me, the next year, which would have been three years ago, two thousand nine, in the in the April, March, maybe March, uh, I got a phone call from David Michaels, who was the executive produ- producer of Universal Sports, and he had come over from NBC, NBC is a partial owner of Universal, and um, he, he's been the executive producer of the Olympics for NBC for a number of years, yeah. and so he was charged with growing this, this little entity into a viable television sports network, and he gave me a phone call. He did some checking and asked some people he knew and asked for ideas for an analyst, and he called me up and and uh, offered me a position to be the analyst for the tour of the Basque country, also known as País Vasco. Yeah. And uh, and it was a seven day, no, six day race. And I thought, well, gosh, I should do this. And I did it. And it was a little bit, it was a little bit less than perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say a lot less. And in fact, it was, it was hard. It was very hard to pick out all the riders from the front when you're not used to seeing all these Spanish teams that you never see outside yeah. of Spain. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so you, you just, you just have to, you just have to wing it and you have to struggle and, and, uh, do the best you can. But, uh, I, I did well enough that he then had me do the Giro d'Italia for them a little bit later on that year. And, and, uh, and he gave me a lot of feedback. David was very good at helping me sort of consider my craft. And he's been in television for a long time. His brother is Al Michaels, who's the NFL commentator. Oh, yeah. And uh, so he, he really, you know, he's one of those guys where when he gives you a suggestion, you don't just think about it. You actually just do it. <laughs> and, uh, and, it's, and it's worth it. And so that was really the big breakthrough for me. And, and since then I've, I've had, you know, some stuff with other networks. I've, I've done Fox Sportsnet, I've done Comcast, I've done, uh, versus, which is now NBC sports network. Yeah. Um, but the bulk of my work is still with universal sports and it's, uh, it's really a pleasure for me to be part of that organization, even though I'm a independent contractor, I feel like it's my home. Absolutely. Now you're, you mentioned Steve, uh, and your relationship with him and how you guys have been working together. Has it just been since the universal days that you guys have worked together? Because as you kind of, as you mentioned, you guys seem to have a pretty darn good rapport with each other and you're able to bounce that off of each other. Did it just happen through universal? Yeah. Well, you know, after we beat each other up there, the first few races, <laughs> um, <laughs> we got pretty tight and, yeah. uh, I have to say that I I really do enjoy working with Steve and 
I hope he would say the same. We've we've had a lot of fun together. Um, I mean, sometimes you get these wild curveballs when you're calling a race live, and and it's a team just like a bike racing team. You're you're trying to back each other up, and and if 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 you can tell your partner is floundering, you take over. If yeah. you can feel it, you know, if if he's if if you can see the gears turning in his head when you're sitting there on your headphone, and you're like, I just got to jump in there and help him out. And, uh, and so that's what you do. It's just like being a bike racer. You know, you lead each other out, you, you go back to the car and get, get refreshments. You do what you need to do because just like in bike racing as a broadcast team, if one guy fails, the whole show fails. Yeah. Now, how is that different from working with, uh, with Steve? You're just the two of you to working with a larger team like you're doing with the tour. That's got to be, I mean, for those of us on the outside, it looks just like an absolute media circus covering an event like that. You've got a lot more, uh, not necessarily individual race coverage, but a lot of the pre-show, post-show where you're doing all this kind of stuff and analyzing and working with Phil and Bob and Paul and all those guys. What are the two... What do they like? What are the, what's the difference between the two? Well, I'll tell you what. You're absolutely right. It is a circus. <laughs> it is so incredibly busy. The riders are impossibly busy. The teams, all the staff are impossibly busy. It's so hard to get through to people. And, um, and you know, because there's so much media there, everybody wants a piece of those riders. Yeah. And so everybody has all their defenses up. And, and because of that, you, you know, it just adds to the pressure of the whole event. The riders have the pressure, the teams, the sponsors, the media, you know, everybody's in the frenzy. The fans are in the frenzy. So it's just, it's this very, uh, July is the month of cycling frenzy. There's no doubt about it. And, um, and it's, it's great. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic atmosphere but it poses other challenges. It poses challenges of, you know, the fact that you're, you, you, I can't just call up a guy after the race, which I do a lot when I'm working for universal sports, I'll, I'll text a director or I'll call a director and I'll say, Hey, can, can I, uh, can I talk with Chris Horner in a little yeah. bit? I'd love to, you know, get his words on today's stage. You just can't do that at the tour. It's, it's really tough. Yeah. Um, and, and like the directors are usually a lot more accessible than the riders are. So at least you can, you can get through to them more at the tour de France, but the riders, it's very, very tough, especially if you're sitting at the finish line, like, like I am every day. So you, you can't catch them at the, you can't catch them at the start cause you're not there and they're super isolated at the start anyway. Yeah. And then at the finish, um, you're right. There are a lot of logistics with the show, with the pregame show and, and then the live call, and then this last year for Versus, I was doing the primetime show. And the primetime show, we would start recording as soon as the race finished. So I couldn't hang out at the finish line and go to the buses and, and try and talk to guys like that because we start recording our show so we could send it up to the satellite and send it back to the U.S. Oh, wow. So trying so, to get any kind of a concept of what's going on, you, you're more or less trying to have to figure it out on your own, I would guess, especially if you're shooting immediately after the stage finishes. Yeah. I mean, basically what, what my method of getting firsthand information is, is to call the directors in the team cars during the race. Okay. And while the live call is going on, because Phil and Paul are handling that and I'm watching the live call because I got to do a primetime show afterwards and, and talk about some of the things that happened during the race. And so, you know, the, calling the directors before the final hour of the race when they won't answer their phone anymore, <laughs> um, or or calling a, a guy in a passenger seat, Jim Akovitz for BMC, you know, great guy to oh, call. Yeah. And it just so happens that he used to run the 7-Eleven team that I used to battle against. Yeah. Uh, you know, but he's never behind the wheel, so I can call him up and, and uh, you know, we have a long history and... He'll he'll tell me what's going on, and so that's that's what it is basically. And then in the evenings, after we record our show, then there's always a chance if I have mobile phone uh, coverage, driving to the next finish town, um, you know, try and get through to 
riders and or directors on that drive later in the night because they're they're on a real nighttime schedule. I mean, guys eat dinner at eight eight thirty. Um, it's it's very much a nighttime schedule. So yeah. if you sometimes you can catch them just before they they uh, sit down for dinner, or you can get them after dinner. Oh man. So you're just trying to wedge yourself in whenever you can. But I, I can also imagine that you're trying to get this information without being the guy who's the, the fly in their ear who's constantly bugging them because then they're not going to take your call anymore. Yeah, it's a delicate balance. Wow. And, uh, and you have to have a lot of, a lot of teams in your uh, Rolodex, as it were, yeah. and, and try to spread the calls around. And, and honestly, you know, it's also spreading the love around because – Part of the reason why these these guys are in the race is to get coverage, yeah. you know, and, and U.S. television is important for a number of these teams. And so, you know, they understand that and mm -hmm. they want to talk with you so that, uh, you know, you can put you can put information into the broadcast about them. But uh, but sometimes they just don't have time and, you know, things happen. I mean, it is a, it's a pressure cooker and it's. I can tell you, like right after the Tour de France, uh, I came back to the U.S. to do the tour of Utah, and I would go to the start line with a with a shooter, and and uh, we'd you know walk over to Levi and you know ask if you know I could have a word with him. Sure, talk with him, interview him. He'd do the race. I'd do the call. Jump out of the jump out of the truck. Yeah. Run to the finish line. You could interview him again. Yeah, you could wow. interview one guy twice in one day and do the call. I mean, you just you can't do that at the tour. That's just the magnitude of the tour. Yeah. yeah. So so you know at, at the tour of Utah, which is a phenomenal race. Yeah. You can you could go. I could go interview ten guys before the race started. At the tour, if you want to get any marquee rider, you have one guy, and that's all you can get. You'll stand at their bus, wait for them to come out. And hope that they talk with you, and they'll they'll probably grant one or two interviews on the way out, and that would, and and because I wasn't doing that, you know, it wouldn't have been me. But it would, you know, they'll like Craig Hummer would be there or Robbie Ventura. They'd each stake out a bus. Maybe Craig was staking out BMC for Cadell, and Robbie was staking out Leopard Trek for Andy Schleck, and they would stand there for an hour. And when those guys came out, they would get their couple of questions, and then that rider would get on their bike and ride away, and that's it. Wow. Is is there an event you'd mention, you know, something like the Tour of Utah, which is much more approachable, even though it's still got, you know, some magnitude. It's obviously not the magnitude of the Tour, and I think the Tour of Utah organizers would probably begrudgingly agree with me on that. Is there an event or a time of year that you really – kind of excited oh man this is going to be this is this is something that i really look forward to in terms of coverage in terms of announcement you know i know the tour is such a large event some people you know i uh, me being on the outside would think god that would be such a stressful time maybe one of the smaller events or working with steve in a, in a, a two-man team would be more enjoyable for you is there one that you prefer over the other mm. uh, no actually I really like what I do. Yeah. I mean, I I feel really fortunate to have had this opportunity to start doing this. It's something that I work very hard at in terms of just ongoing daily research, uh, reading uh, constantly, and then um, and then really sort of sharpening up my my knowledge coming into every single event. So, uh, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm doing the team presentation in a few days on uh, January 30th for Optum Pro Cycling presented by Kelly Benefit Strategies team. Oh. And it's in, it's in the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. And uh, I sp I'll spend a couple of days, like, really going through everything about that team, each rider, the uh, the changes in the roster from last year. I will talk with the directors before I get out there. Um, I will really think about it and think about what makes this group special. Uh, it, it certainly doesn't help that the uh, the men's director, performance director, is Jonas Carney, a former teammate of mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it's uh, it, it's just it's like. 
it's literally like every event I cover is really fun and really fulfilling in its own way. And, and like the Tour de France is exhausting, but yet it's this incredible experience. The Giro d'Italia is not quite as exhausting because I'm not on site. I'm in California, yeah. uh, but it's still long. And yet it's this great event. It's this great event. I mean, you've seen the racing there the last couple of years. It's, oh, God, it's been, yeah. uh, it's been pretty intense. Um, so, you know, the Vuelta, by the time I get to the Vuelta, I'm a little bit tired. There's no doubt. It's, <laughs> my job is is more like a racer than I think I ever would have thought going into it, just in terms of schedule, energy, pacing, teamwork, all these things. Like by the end of my announcing season, I'm both excited for the races, but I'm also tired. And when it ends, it's like, wow, that was a great year, but man, I need a rest. Yeah. Um, and, and which is kind of funny. It's, it's funny to think that way because if you look at most people's professional lives, they don't have a season. They don't have some downtime after October 15th when they call their last yeah. race. Uh, you know, they're going back to the office every single day, but it's, it's it's a different type of a job and it's it's obviously not an athletic job and it's not a uh it's not a uh an acting job but it's in a way there's a little bit of a combination of those things I was just about to say it's both yeah it's a little bit of both yeah it's it's you have to be up you have to you have to be ready and and completely focused on every event when you get behind the microphone and it's it's amazing to me with with the amount of uh with the with the lack of ability i have to focus sometimes how much <laughs> i focus during a bike race i mean there's nothing else in the world happening when i'm in the bike race it is literally the bike race and that's it wow okay now have you had any in your in your broadcasting career is there any moments you've said oh my god this was one of the most amazing events i've been able to call do you have any highs or Ones that stand out above the others? I know, because there's been a lot. I mean, I'm, wow, I'm getting yeah. a little picky, uh, aren't I? So, um, I guess, so I've done seven Grand Tours in the last three years. Uh, <laughs> Maybe <laughs> so, I am being a little too picky. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's it's a lot, you know. Um, but uh, I'll tell you something. Uh, one of the best days that I've ever seen in a bike race was actually last fall at the Vuelta a España, and it was the stage that finished at the Peña Cabarga, and it was the battle between second place Chris Froome and first place uh, Kobo oh, and wow. uh, Juanjo Kobo. And if you didn't see it, go find it on the archives of Universal Sports website, but it's, a, it's an uphill finish. It's not some, you know, 10-mile grinder, but it's it's a hard, short climb. And those guys were going to battle in a way that I don't know I've ever seen before at the finish line of a bike race. Now, you know, you see guys on a climb attacking each other, and and, you know, one guy comes back and maybe counters. This was in the last K and a half of the bike race. The lead, it looked like two or three different times that one guy was done and the other guy was going to ride away with it. And they ended up finishing together. And it was insane. Uh, It was it was really insane. Froome got the stage win. Kobo held on. And that's what allowed him to win the Vuelta overall. And uh, and honestly, he looked like he was done. He really (laughs) did. And he came back. So that was impressive. Yeah, Um, I think in general. Though, like I was saying, I like I like all the races for their own reasons, but I have to say that the first time I did the Giro d'Italia in 2009, it felt like it was a pretty big deal. Um, <laughs> you know, it, the racing was great. It was Menchov fighting fighting oh, it out yeah. with Danilo De Luca, and uh, you know they were really going to battle, and and it was really good bike racing. And the Giro in general is just this 
somewhat crazy, chaotic race. I, I'll tell you something. There's a big difference between the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia and the Vuelta. The biggest difference is that the Tour, because it's so big, it's such a huge sporting event, they will not put it on the little tiny goat path roads. They will not do yeah. that because they cannot accommodate that's true. everything that's necessary to get to the finish line you know, on those summit finishes. So they will not do that. The Giro, they don't care. They will put it on the littlest road that is a service road to get to the top of the ski area that's closed all year round <laughs> and only open it for the bike race. Yeah. The Vuelta will do the same thing. And so because of that, it's a little bit crazy for the racers and it makes things a little bit unpredictable, but it also opens them up to be these, these wildly, you know, dynamic races where there can be a lot of change. And, um, and sometimes the racers absolutely hate it. I mean, there's no doubt. And, uh, and, and it can be really dangerous for the riders. And, and as a former rider myself, you know, I always find myself feeling like, Oh man, that, you know, I just don't think that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Trying to fit us all onto a bike path, you know, with steel rails going in or something like that. You know, I, yeah, I just remember yeah. my old Super Week days where they do crap like that, and I can't imagine being in a pro race. Well, and I, and I only did one Super Week day of my entire career, no. and it was '87. It was the battle at the brewery when I was racing for <laughs> Lowenbrow, and we went and did uh, Criterium around the the Miller Brewery yeah. there, and. Uh, <laughs> And so that's the only time I was ever hey. in, in Super Week. It wasn't my style, as you know. I no. was a climber. Yeah, I was a stage racer, and and when I was going really well, I could also time trial. But uh, that would just happen to be something we had to do for sponsor obligations. And yeah. uh, thankfully, I had a good day. So, um, Lowen uh, Brow's got to win out in front of the Miller Brewing Company, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I did win. So uh, here's to good know, friends, was, was, bitches. Was my, yeah. uh, my one option to be out there, one opportunity. I went home the next day, and uh, oh. thank you very much. Oh my God! Hey, what's what's up for 2012? Where are you where are you where are we going to find you? Where are we going to hear from you? Uh, do you well, know yet? <laughs> yeah, uh, I I do know um, a fair amount of what's up for 2012. Um, we're going to, uh, add some stuff to my universal sports calendar and, uh, things that are confirmed, um, are largely like last year. So we'll have cyclocross worlds coming up here real soon. Uh, in fact, uh, it's, it's this weekend, but, um, we'll, we'll voice it over. It's not a live show because they're going to edit it down, um, to fit into the, uh, time slot. Gotcha. But, uh. You know, some of the stuff we do is live, and some of it is a, a VO or a voiceover because of uh, reasons for scheduling, basically. And um, so we'll we'll start our season out with Cross Worlds uh, coming up here very soon, and then um, next event for me is going to be the Strade Bianche, which is a like a semi classic in Italy. And it's a fabulous race, actually. I'm really glad we're going to have it on. It's uh, about 60 miles of it. Um, I may be wrong. It may be 60 kilometers. But it's a bunch of miles are on these white dirt roads. And oh, wow. uh, it's it's only been around for maybe this, maybe its sixth year. But it's a cool event. And it's run by the same folks, RCS, that run the Giro d'Italia and Terreno Adriatico and Milan San Remo and those races, which we do all those as well. So we'll do Strada Bianche, we'll do Terreno. This is all in March. March yeah. becomes really heavy, uh, Milan-San Remo. And then, uh, and then we'll move into April. We have another new event there. Um, I think we're doing another event there in the middle of the month, but I can't, ver I can't confirm that because I'm not positive it's been announced. Okay. But uh, we'll start out with uh, Pais Vasco and in early April, and then hopefully we'll have that other event as well, which is a pretty cool one. And then the Giro d'Italia in May, and then, and then from then on, uh, middle of summer, don't really do much in cycling with Universal Sports. Um, hopefully, we'll be. Uh, and I actually am not confirmed yet for the Tour de France. Um, these sometimes these things get confirmed far in advance. Sometimes they don't. So, yeah. I'm uh, looking forward to being back there, but I don't know if I will or not. Um, and then we'll have Utah in August after the Tour, and then the Tour of Spain. 
uh, just stuff we did last year and uh, follow up this season with a week of world championships. Okay. Okay. Well, I know all of our listeners are going to be definitely tuning in. We got the junkies who are going to be watching you. The guys who are probably, even if it is on at the crack of dawn, they'll be, they'll be tuning in and watching it. You know, I, I, I could ask you this in advance. You could deny to answer or not. Um, any <laughs> predictions for any of I the deny. big races? I deny it. No predictions? No, no, I didn't even listen to the question. Oh, come on. <laughs> the predictions for the big races, uh, the, you know, the, the Paris-Roubaix, the Tours, uh, the, the Giro, anything like that? You got any, got any inside information of guys you think are going to dominate? Um, you know what? Classics for me are really tough to call. Uh, I, I think we've seen, we've seen tough guys win classics. Um, over the years, and that's pretty much the guys that win classics. Yeah. But it's not always the favorite. In fact, very often it's not. And there, there's so many variables. And those guys, they get marked out of the bike race. You know, I mean, uh, 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 Fabian Conchalara, Tor Hussov, uh actually, by the way, it is called, we, we don't pronounce his name properly. It's Husovd, but Husov. we all pronounce it Husovd. Um, and, and I have not made the change yet in broadcast because I don't want everybody to start writing in saying I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> but it, they don't pronounce it uh, SH like we do in the States. It's Husovd. Oh. Anyhow, so Husovd, uh, you know, Bone and those guys all get marked out of it. There's another guy, um, B-O-O is actually yeah, Boonin, Bonin. right? It's not, it's not Boonin, it's Bonin. <laughs> well, it's funny even hearing Bob Roll say Tour de France, you know, and I think yeah, he's well, twisted he that back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, he's he's coming around. Uh, yeah. he, he, I asked him this year if he changed his, his Tour de France. Yeah. Because they asked him to at the network, and he said, "No, nah, it was just time to make a change." <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I, I would not want to predict the classics, but I will tell you, um, I have a very strong suspicion that Alberto Contador is, I think he's going to be the man at the Tour de France again. Yeah. Now that brings up a little side question and uh, I, I'll just dive right into it. Uh, that's assuming he hasn't gotten suspended. Yeah. The Clint and, thing. Um, yeah. I have no idea. I mean, you know, people ask me all the time if I know anything about his hearing and the answer is no. If I knew anything about his hearing, I would say that would be a real shame. Yeah. Uh, you know, it should be completely private. Nobody should know anything about any of these hearings. And uh, when somebody's being investigated, it should be between the investigative bodies and and nobody else. Uh, if the information is being leaked, I think that's a failure of the system. Um, but I think if he is not suspended, I, I think he's going to be the man. Uh, it just he's he's an unbelievable athlete. You know, Bruno Neal has said he thinks he's the best athlete in cycling. That he maybe he was even better than Lance. Um, you know, his directors from a couple of years ago, yeah. before he switched teams, were telling me they'd never seen him so good. He's just an unbelievable good athlete. He uh, he basically quit riding after the 2012 Tour de France. He put on he says seven and a half kilos. 2.2 pounds per kilo. You do the math for a 135-pound guy. Oh, my God. Yeah. He he started riding his bike at the team training camp, Soxa Bank's camp in Israel in December, middle of December. And he already won a summit finish in Argentina oh yesterday or the day before <laughs> in the Tour de San Luis, beating Levi Leipheimer, you know, getting rid of Nibali, all these other guys. Now, he didn't drop them by a long shot, but there's a guy, you know, some people have it. Yeah. And there's a guy who has it. And yeah. uh, I have a lot of respect for him as a rider, uh, what he's capable of. Now, I will say, I was really disappointed with what he did at the 2010 Tour de France when Andy Schleck dropped his chain. And oh, I, I, Andy yeah. was attacking. Contador came from behind. It was Vino who had first marked Schleck. And Contador came from back behind and, and said, you know, it was a mis you know, he didn't see that he had a mechanical. Right. I thought that was bogus. Yeah, um, I do too. I, I agree. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and the Peloton is really split about that. I mean, I've asked a lot of professional cyclists about that. And, and about 50-50, the guys I've asked, some of them said, oh, yeah, too bad. 
go for it. And other guys wow. are like, yeah, that was bogus. To me, that was bogus. Yeah. I, I think there's something about cycling that it's always been this sport of what, in in my opinion and the way I raced my bike, this this sport where people could maybe not sort of resort to what I would consider dirty tricks or, you know, any chance possible, but, but just win it on the athletic ability. I've always sort of liked that particular thing about the sport. And, and I mean, I can tell you, I was, uh, when I was racing for 10 speed drive, I ended up doing this race in Canada. Um, and I don't remember what it was. It may have been the there were these crazy names, the galaxy of horrors road race, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, but whatever it was, it, it was in Western Canada. And, uh, and I was in a break with Phil Anderson and Phil Anderson was the man, yeah. you know, I mean, that dude, he, he was the Australian that was the Australian of all the Australians, yeah. you know? And, uh, and I had two teammates in that breakaway, Kent Bostick and I think Andy Paulin. And it was just the four of us. And we're like working over Phil Anderson for this local race, which he could care less about, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I just remember I was getting ready to come flying off the back after he was chasing Bostic down and, and I, you know, and I was sitting on his wheel and, and he reached down to take a drink of water. And I was literally already out of the saddle jumping and I just sat up and I said, oh, you know wow. what? Not it's now. just, it's just not right. Yeah. You know, we're three on one. I am not going to jump the guy while he's taking a drink. <laughs> and, uh, you know, did he even notice? Probably not, but, but I noticed yeah. and it was important to me. That's cool. That's very cool. And that, you know what? I'm not going to waste any more of your time because that is such a cool moment. I'm just going to take a pause and pause. That's perfect. What a great way to end. Hey, first of all, uh, to all our listeners, obviously you can catch Todd uh, Universal through uh, Universal Sports, the NBC networks. I know, you, you know you're know you on and off, all those kinds of things. But if you turn on the TV, chances are uh, if there's a bike race there, Todd's going to be one of the voices. And uh, Todd, thanks for bringing that voice of the cyclist to us we i mean i really appreciate that and i i hope that doesn't sound like i'm kissing up too much but i you know i appreciate hearing that a real you know somebody who's been in the trenches and you know and that's nice to, ha- to have a part of the race so um th- it's uh it's a real pleasure and um i i do tweet occasionally i was gonna say how can our listeners you know follow you keep up with you we got a website we got a you, twitter i know we got you on twitter yeah, so I do uh my Twitter handle is Beachy Gogo, which is the Italian word B I C I for bicycle. Gogo, uh you probably know as my nickname. Yeah. And uh I do not do Facebook. And um but you can you can check out my tweets here and there and I do have a blog, but uh it's hopelessly ignored. So uh <laughs> it, I would say it's not worth going to check it out. But you could find it. It's a blogspot blog and uh I don't even know the name of it. I use it so little. <laughs> but I'm sure you could Google it. It is Beachy Gogo. I I I've been on it myself, so I can tell you that's where it is. So. <laughs> well fantastic. Right on. Hey, I appreciate you being on the show and uh you know have a great season, man. Hey thanks. Okay. Thanks, Pat. And uh you know it's great great to hear you doing what you're doing and I, I really hope the the fans enjoy the show today. Absolutely. Thanks again. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.